0: welcome. You're listening to Capture the Moment. It's a series of broadcasts on the Organic Church. My name is Kenny Russell. You're listening to God of Life Radio. And on today's show, we have got back on the phone line offer Frank Viola from Present Testimony Ministries. Frank, welcome to the show again. How are you?
1: Doing great and very happy to be on again.
0: Well, I tell you what, it's such a blessing as I've been traveling and sharing with people on Organic Church and just seeking to bring encouragement to those that want to walk with an organic expression. I've had so many testimonies and so many encouraging words, especially from a trip that I've just been in in Pennsylvania, and people are getting so excited about this new book, From Eternity to Here, and that is what we're going to talk about today. Frank, what motivated you to write this excellent book?
1: What motivated me, I guess, is the fact that the message of the book absolutely turned my life upside down beginning 17 years ago. Yeah. And the revelation of God's ageless purpose, which Paul calls the eternal purpose in Ephesians, was so powerful, it hit me so hard, but it wiped everything else off the map. And it gave me a vision. Proverbs says, without a vision, the people perish. The people disintegrate. They run amok. They fall to pieces. And being a Christian for many years, I did not have one governing vision. I had many little visions, you know. But when the eternal purpose of God was unfolded to me, it absolutely changed my life. And it gave me a governing vision. And with that vision, there was a passion that lives in me to this day. And so I wanted to put that in writing so that God's people everywhere could hopefully have the same experience that I had and that is, <laughs> it really comes down to falling in love with Jesus Christ all yes. over again. And uh, without that vision of his eternal purpose, our lives, at least for me, are kind of piecemeal. They're yeah. they're scattered about. We pick this up, then we chase this, then we chase that. And yet God has a central thought. He has a central purpose that he's had from eternity past, and he will continue to work toward it until eternity future, and it'll go from eternity to eternity. <laughs> yes.
0: Now, I think it's very important where you've come From and the position you've taken on this book because we have to be kingdom minded. We have to understand what's taking place from God's perspective, not taking our ideas to the Word of God and trying to get the Word of God to communicate back to us. The title is intriguing. Tell us about it. From eternity to here, what does that mean exactly?
1: Uh, I'm going to forgive Mr. James Jones for stealing my title. Back in the 1950s, he wrote a book entitled From Here to Eternity, and it became a famous movie.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because we just took those two words and reversed them. Uh-huh. And it is a title that basically says that from eternity past, God has had one driving passion. He has had one central governing desire that has beat within his own heart and that vision that passion that desire that purpose has been brought to this earth that he has created yes and you can really entitle it from eternity to here back to eternity because (laughs) (laughs) when god gets what he wants and he will get it eventually and he's working toward it then that purpose, that desire, that vision, that passion is going to go all the way through eternity future. And it's not so many of the things that we have heard. Yes. I mean, when I was in the traditional church, I'm talking about all the denominations I was part of, I was taught that God's purpose, I mean, the main thing on his heart, his central beating desire is to get people saved. That's what he wants. He doesn't want people to go to hell. He wants And, you know, the fact of the matter is, that is correct, but it's not complete. Yes. What God's eternal purposes goes way beyond salvation and redemption and the uh, winning of souls, if you want to use that term. I don't particularly like it, but people coming to Christ, it goes way beyond that. It's much higher than that. It's much more glorious. So that's really what the title means. You know, God has had something in his heart from eternity, way back in the dateless past, and it's come to earth And he will have it eventually.
0: Yeah, I think when we get hold of that before the creation of the world, God made mention of us. He knew who we were. We were born for a purpose. So when we understand what God's agenda is from the beginning and not just how do we get people to heaven, but really what you're saying is how do we get heaven here? The subtitle is Rediscovering God's Ageless Purpose. You talk a lot about purpose in this book, and you know we have just mentioned a little bit of that just now. But why do you feel that so many Christians are lacking the sense of purpose? I know that we're saying that people have got this idea of we've just got to get people saved. But, you know, as I talk with people and I've traveled across the world, the biggest unanswered question I hear all the time is, what is God's will for my life? What do you feel is the antidote to really get people in line with the purpose of God? Yeah,
1: no, that's an excellent question. And the fact of the matter is, we will never properly understand God's individual specific will for our lives as individual believers until we first see the big will, capital
2: W-I-L-L,
1: and that is His central all-governing, all-consuming, eternal purpose. Yes. Now, once we get a vision of that, once we understand it, you see, then everything lines up, and then we really have a clear understanding of what is God's will for me individually, because it will be related yes. to His eternal purpose. And if it's not, we're off the ramp here. You know, we're <laughs> we're marching to a different drumbeat. And so God has many purposes, a small p,
0: Yeah.
1: But he has one timeless, eternal purpose, and all those little purposes are always related to that timeless purpose. And so consequently, what it does for the Christian to see that is it gives us an understanding of God's larger will, how we fit into it, gives us a sense of passion, a sense of vision, we are motivated, we're clear, and we now have a greater purpose for which to live. And I think the reason why we have missed it is because in most of our present-day churches, and this has been historically true since the Reformation, yeah. is that our Gospel begins not with Genesis 1 and 2. It begins with Genesis 3, with the fall of humans.
2: Oh, yes. And that's
1: our starting point. And yes. so we always start out... We always begin the story with Genesis 3, man fell, how do we get him rectified, okay? But the problem with that is, that's the middle of the story. The beginning of the story begins with Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, and even before that, in Ephesians 1 and in Colossians 1, in parts of the Gospel of John, we have a great deal of information concerning what was going on before creation. Yes. Okay, before before the earth was created, and it explains why God created in the first place. And when we begin to see that, and that's what from eternity to here unfolds and develops, when we begin to see that, it is mind-blowing. Yes. I mean, it really is mind-blowing, and it's something that, for whatever reasons, we have not heard today. I mean, I've heard thousands and thousands of sermons. in different churches and parachurch organizations and through teachers and ministries across the planet over the years. And I can count on one hand the times I've heard anybody talk about the eternal purpose of God. And yet, brother, that is the main theme. That is the chief narrative of the Bible.
0: (laughs) Yeah, what you're saying there is this is written. We're actually hearing it coming from so many voices are actually speaking the word of God, but we're delivering a different message. I was just thinking there about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And right there, we just need to get an anchor right in there. Okay. Okay. Your kingdom, Lord, how does your kingdom come? What is your will? And that is what you're bringing us back to in this book is to get right back to the places. What is God's will rather than saying, what am I going to do and how do I I do something? You know, we all know the scripture that says you prophesy in my name, you cast out devils, you heal the sick in my name. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. But wait a second, didn't we do what the Bible said And I really think we've been so deceived, Frank, haven't we, from people teaching about doing the works of being a Christian without relationship. And in this Eternal Purpose book, I've just been so excited. Man, your first section on dealing with the bride of Christ just sets me on fire because it helps us understand that we have been created from him and what our purpose is. But to really get the whole picture of what's taken place in contemporary Christians, we haven't really got a handle to what the message is, even though we've heard those scriptures time and time again. But people have twisted them to talk about themselves rather than God, haven't they?
1: We have a very human-centered gospel today, and it sounds like this. The gospel is, you're a sinner and you need to be saved, so in order to prevent yourself from going to hell, believe this message and you will go to heaven. Okay, now that's true, that's true. I don't deny that. Yeah. What's the center of that? The center of that is human beings and the fact that they don't have to suffer, okay? Or it's, you're sick, God wants you well. You're in poverty, God wants you, you know, to prosper. Or it's, look at the earth, it's corrupt, it's fallen, we've got to take care of the earth, we've got to make the world a better place, yeah. so let's get to work and do that. Okay, again, I don't disagree with any of that, yes. but here's my statement on it. It is correct, but it is not complete. And who's the center of all of that? It's you and me, it's human beings. But God has an eternal purpose, he has a governing passion that is by him, that is through him, and that is to him. Yes. And the center of that purpose is is his son and the beating, passionate, relentless desire of his son that he wants for himself. And when we line up with that, the result is, yes, our needs are met, we're blessed. I mean, it's wonderful for human beings because that's the purpose for which we were created. But the central point and the reason, the motivation is for him. Yes. And that's a totally different perspective, and it puts us on a totally different mountain from which to view. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to give three quick analogies yeah. that really sum up the book. The first one is, my friend Lynn Sweet was quoting this interview by the CEO of Apple, Apple Computers, etc., and he yeah. said this, Ultimately, there needs to be some gravitational force that pulls it all together, Otherwise, you can get great pieces of technology all floating around the universe, but it doesn't add up to much. Now, (laughs) I think that's awesome. There has to be some gravitational force that pulls it all together. And I would just say to our listeners, that gravitational force is the eternal purpose of God in Christ. And if we don't have a vision of what that is, then as Proverbs said, without a vision, the people disintegrate, they run amok, without a vision there is division okay that's what division is <laughs> it's the result of not if having a vision. single vision
2: yeah and so
1: consequently that's what we have on the earth today but if we can see that purpose and submit ourselves to it and bend to it and yield to it which is a glorious purpose i mean it's mind blowing when you see it then everything begins to add up all the little pieces of our lives begin to fit together okay the other analogy is that of a river and a tributary mm-hmm. i had this vision back in ninety two of this huge river And there were these little tributaries running off, but the river was moving in one direction. Now, the tributaries are part of the river, but the tributaries are not the river. And so what I see is God has this humongous, enormous, immense, monumental, eternal purpose that is just incredible, and it's moving in a certain direction, and that's the river. But we Christians are stuck on some tributary. So, for example, one tributary is evangelism and we've got Christians swimming around in that tributary. Mm -hmm. Then another tributary is holiness. We got Christians swimming around in that tributary. Then we got another one, the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit, you know? yeah. (laughs) And then we've got another (laughs) one, and that's apologetics. You name it, anything in the Christian life that people are stuck on or chasing after, those are tributaries. Now, they're part of the river, but they're not the river. (laughs) And so what the Lord wants is for us to get into that flow of the river of His eternal purpose, and then all these other things that are ends in themselves and have become ends in themselves, become part of that river, and then God is going to get what he's after. And then the other analogy is this. It's not really an analogy. It's an observation, and I bring it out in the book. Uh If you open up Genesis 1 and 2, these are two chapters before the fall ever occurred. There's no sin in Genesis 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. If you look carefully, you can count 30 or more themes. Okay? For example, the Tree of Life is there. The flowing river is there. You have a man and a woman. You have a wedding. You have a marriage. You have a gold, pearl, and precious stone. Then if you go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, this is after the fall has been erased. Yeah. Satan has been thrown into the pit. Okay, there's a new heaven and a new earth. There's no sin. Okay, you will observe, if you look carefully, that the same 30 themes that appear in Genesis 1 and 2 reappear. At uh-huh. Revelation 21 and 22, you have the Tree of Life again.
0: That's you have powerful. the
1: Flowing River again. Uh-huh. You have a man and a woman. You have a boy and a girl. You have a marriage. You have a wedding. You have gold, pearl, and precious stone. <laughs> and the whole Bible is the development of those themes from Genesis 1 and 2 all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, until their glorious climax in Revelation 21 and 22. And that's what the Bible is about. It's about those themes. And those themes are all related to, they tell the story of God's eternal purpose. And that's what I do in the book, basically.
0: Well, it's definitely a prophetic message for today to bring God's alignment to his people so that we can accomplish the purpose of God. Your focus is on rediscovering the ageless purpose of God. And I know, Frank, from this first half we just had, man, this is so exciting And I know that many lives are getting changed from reading this book. But how did the romantic films help you understand the Lord's character and purpose?
1: The book is divided up into three parts, and we can probably talk about that later. But the first part is entitled A Forgotten Woman, Mm -hmm. The Bride of Christ. And it's all about the fact that from eternity past, God has wanted to be married. <laughs> God the Father has wanted a bride for yeah. his son. And so there is within God Himself a relentless passion, an unbending love, a desire to love and to be loved in return. Yes. And of course, the love that goes back to Him is really the love that He pours out. We love Him because He first loved us, the Apostle John said. And so consequently, one of the things I do in the book is I draw from some well-known romantic films and make the point that every romance, whether it's a real-life romance between a man and a woman, or whether it's a written novel romance, or whether it's put to screen, every romance is a faint echo. It is a shadow It is a demonstration of the real romance that is beating within God's heart, and that's going on between Jesus Christ and his beloved bride. Adam and Eve, we see the story, it's the first romance ever, you know, that occurred visibly on planet Earth. And we have the picture of, you know, Eve coming out of Adam's side, and then the two becoming one. And Paul makes this statement in Ephesians chapter 5 that's just astounding. Yeah. He talks about the man and the woman, he talks about Adam and Eve, he talks about this marriage, this wedding, this romance, and then he turns around and says, but I am not speaking <laughs> of Adam <laughs> and Eve. <laughs> Behold, I show you in a mystery, I am speaking of Jesus Christ and his beloved bride, the Church. And so that pours fresh new paint on <laughs> Genesis One and two. Yes. There is a picture here, although I believe it historically happened. You know, Adam and Eve are real people that lived and so forth. But God was getting at something. There was a message there. Yeah. And interestingly enough, in Romans chapter five, Paul, as he writes that wonderful letter, says that Adam was a figure. He was a shadow. He was a picture of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. So Eve represents the Church, and Adam represents Christ, and where did Eve come from? She came right out of his side. And so I spent a lot of time drawing this out and then bringing it all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but getting back to your question, the human romances, although marred and corrupted and flawed, are a faint picture of the real romance that beats within God's heart. And what I have noticed is that many Christians, at least for me and and many of my friends, we were taught to think about God mathematically, not romantically. It's all academic. The more Bible verses you memorize, the more theology you know, the more you know God, and that's just not true. Now, certainly the Bible's important, and understanding it's important, but what the Bible is designed to do is to cause that love to be stronger in our hearts as we get a revelation of who Jesus Christ really is yes. and his overwhelming passion and love for us. So that's what the first section of the book does.
0: Talking on that, there's one story that when I was reading the book in that section that just really impacted me, and that was the story where you shared about the boy and girl at school the wrestler. And he had this love for the girl. Share a little bit with that story for the listeners, because that just created such an impact when you see what happened in that relationship.
1: Yeah, well, this is a real story. There was a young man who fell in love with this young woman and did everything he could to show her how he felt about her. But she had such low self-esteem that she would not receive his love. And there is a principle that's written in the bloodstream of the universe that if a man shows a woman love Mm -hmm. and she doesn't receive that love, then essentially he becomes a frustrated lover. There's no outlet for it. He becomes frustrated. But if she receives his love, you see, if she receives his love, if she allows herself to receive the love, then what will happen is love will be born in her heart to love him back. And so this is the way it is with the Lord. The dilemma, though, is that many Christians, many of us have been taught that we are just such horrible people. God is not happy with us. We've got to do more to make God happy. I know we're all taught God loves us. Okay, fine. But if you get the average Christian in a room and say, do you really, really believe that God loves you unconditionally? then most of them are going to say, well, you know what? (laughs) I know it in my head, but I don't know it in my heart. Right. Deep down in our hearts, for so many of us, we doubt that. We have not really come to grips with it. We've not really embraced it, that he loves us unconditionally. Yes. And So consequently, if we have an identity crisis and we have this guilt complex or this inferiority complex spiritually, then the love that Jesus Christ wishes to pour out on us In reality, there's no outlet for it. We basically shut ourselves off from it, you see? And what that does, in turn, is we have a hard time truly loving Jesus Christ back, because the only way we can love him is to receive his love for us. And so, consequently, what I do in the book is to pull back the curtain and do my best to show how the Lord really sees us. And this is very clear in the New Testament if it's not clouded over. And when we see this, it changes everything. One of the most common responses to this book so far, it just came out in the beginning of March, but I've received this comment numerous times already. It's this. I have now fallen back in love with my Lord again. Yes. <laughs> And the reason is because they have come to grips with how the Lord views us. And once we can catch hold of that, then it gives birth to love and passion in our own hearts that will pour back to the Lord himself. So this love story, this sacred romance, the romance of the ages, as I call it, begins in Genesis 1, you can trace it all the way through the Old Testament, the love between God and his people, all the way through the New Testament, the love between Jesus Christ and his church, all the way to Revelation 21 and 2. It is a central theme of Scripture, and it is an aspect of God's eternal purpose, and I deal with it in part one of the book.
0: That's exciting. You know, one of the statements you make in the book is, Jesus Christ did not come to begin a new religion, And usually I would say after that, but he came to give us relationship, and that's true. But you went on and said, he came to begin a new creation. Now, we've Mm -hmm. talked about the book being divided into three, and that was a little bit about part one. Can you talk a little about each section of the book?
1: Uh, Absolutely. As we said, part one is called A Forgotten Woman, Uh and I explain why I (laughs) say she's been forgotten. She should be right there in center stage with the Lord Jesus Christ, but she's been pushed in the back of the bus. But she's the bride of Christ, that's part one. Part two is entitled, "An Eternal Quest, The House of God. And here again, we begin with Genesis 1, we begin even before that, in eternity past, God has been in quest for a dwelling place. Yes. A place where he can live. Okay, and you find this all throughout the Old Testament, all the pictures of the temple and the tabernacle, beginning with the altar and the tent that Abraham and Jacob had, moving to the tabernacle of Moses, then moving toward the tabernacle of David, which is very exciting, and then moving toward the temple of Solomon, and then the temple that Ezekiel saw in his vision. All of these are pictures of God's relentless and unstoppable passion to have a house, a place where he will dwell. Isaiah said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, where will the place of my dwelling be? Yes. And then in the New Testament, you have Jesus Christ showing up, and he says this incredible statement, he says, I am the tabernacle of God, I am the temple of God. Yes. Oh, it's
3: powerful. And then,
1: yeah, it's awesome, you know, <laughs> all the pictures are revealed and fulfilled in him of the house of God. But then something amazing happens. He is crucified. He is put in the tomb for three days, and then he rises again on that third day, sends into the heavens, and then gives birth to the real temple of God, which is the church, the dwelling place of God Almighty.
0: Now, on that note there, I was thinking, go back and just explain a little bit about Jacob when he anoints that stone, because that passage of Scripture in Genesis 28, 1 to 22 that you talk about, it is so important, especially when we see that Christ is the cornerstone. But how relevant is that passage of Jacob to do with the connection to heaven and earth?
1: Well, I think it's glorious because you have Jacob who is wandering at that point in his life. He has this vision of a ladder that extends from heaven and earth. And there's commerce, there's traffic moving from heaven to earth. There's angels descending and ascending up and down this ladder. It's the connection between the heavenlies and the earthlies. When Jacob awakes from this dream where he sees this ladder, he said, Behold, I am in the house of God. This is God's house. (laughs) And so he takes a stone he anoints it with oil. What's so interesting about that is if you go forward in the story, and again, I developed this from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, and I tell it as a narrative all throughout Scripture. You can see it everywhere. What you find is that Peter says in his letter... You and I are living stones yes. built together to form the Lord's house. And then when you look at the opening passages in John, Jesus Christ talks about Nathaniel and he says, You will see the Son of Man and descending from heaven and earth. And he talks about that ladder that Jacob saw, and he says, I am that ladder, basically,
3: <laughs> Yes.
1: <laughs> that heaven and earth meet in me, yes. that the Eternals and the Temporary, and the earthlies meet in me. I am that gap. I am the house of God. Mm -hmm. And then when Peter turns around and says, you are living stones, all of us, when we came into this earth, were dead stones. Yes. And what happened is, God, through the Holy Spirit, when we believed on Christ, poured His oil on us, (laughs) we became living stones. But God's intention is not just to have a scattered group of living stones on the planet. Yes. He wants those stones to be built together to form a dwelling place for God, a house for God. And one of the things I say in the book is I draw a contrast between visitations and a dwelling place. Right. I was brought up in a movement that constantly talked about visitations from God. Oh, God, visit us. You know, we need a visitation <laughs> from God, you know? And the fact of the matter is, this is not God's eternal purpose. He doesn't want to just visit, okay? He doesn't want a place to just kind (laughs) of show up as a guest and then leave. No, he wants a dwelling place where he lives, and not only that, where he's head of the house. And so there's a big difference between visitations and dwelling. I developed this in the book. Another point I make is that when Jesus Christ was on this earth, he gave us a beautiful picture of what the house of God really means and what every church ought to be. Yes. And it's a little village of Bethany. Jesus Christ, when he penetrated this planet from the heavenly realms, he was rejected in all quarters, okay? He was rejected by the Jews. He was rejected by Jerusalem. He was rejected by the leadership in Jerusalem. He was rejected by his own people that he grew up with in Nazareth. Yes. He was rejected by his own family members. (laughs) You know, his brothers and sisters didn't believe on him. He said, the world does not receive me all right? So he was rejected everywhere. And there's only one place that received him. It was a little town called Bethany, a little village. And this was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he would always retreat to Bethany whenever he would go to Jerusalem in the day, whenever he had to go to Jerusalem in the day. He would go to this little village at night, and he would rest there. He never would stay in Jerusalem to rest. He would not spend a night in Jerusalem except the night he was crucified. But other than that, he would always go back. Bethany is very close to Jerusalem. He would dwell there. Yes. And that was his home. It was home for him. They received him there. And you see, every church, not buildings and systems and organizations we're talking about, every community of believers in every city is to be a Bethany. Yes. For Jesus Christ to be able to rest and lay his head. He said, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, he does in Bethany. And that's what every church is to be. So, this was brought out as well in the book. God Almighty, who created, has wanted a place to dwell, and it is in his people. And that's not just some theological truth, you know? For many Christians, it's just a theological statement. Oh, yes, we're the dwelling place of God. Well, I'm talking about in reality. He wants a place where he can feel comfortable, where he can take off his shoes—I'm speaking metaphorically, (laughs)
2: folks—take
1: off his shoes, lean back, and rest, and have a place that receives him totally for who he is. And that's really what the true meaning of a church is. That's what an organic church is, okay? (laughs) It's a dwelling place of God in reality.
0: That's powerful. Not religion, but a place of dwelling in reality. That's incredible. What's the third part of the book about
1: well the third part is entitled a new species (laughs) and basically it's all about the fact that God the Father has wanted a family he's wanted kids yes from the very beginning he's wanted children offspring and also it's about the fact that God the Son has wanted a body a visible body through which to express himself so it's about the body of Christ and the family of God But it presents those two images in a very unique way, a way that, for many Christians, we've not heard it presented this way, because most of us, we hear the body of Christ. It's an old, tired statement. Yes. Of course, the body of Christ. (laughs) I'm part of the body, okay? And there's no impact. There's no power behind it. People don't get passionate about it. Same thing with the family of God. But in this section, again, we go back to from eternity past... We go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we trace this theme of the body and the family. And uh, I use the term new species. It's a term that C.S. Lewis used and some other writers, Arthur Custance, because when we look at the word new creation in the New Testament, or new man, or new humanity, it's really talking about a new kind of being, a new kind of person that has never existed before. Yes. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ has come to produce and to give offspring to a brand new race, a brand new creation, a brand new humanity, a new species, if you will, that is unlike anything that's ever existed before. Now, When Jesus was on this earth, yes, physically he was Jewish, culturally he was Jewish, but he came from another place. He said, I'm not of this world, I was sent here, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And he had the DNA of God flowing in him. And when he resurrected and breathed his spirit into his people, what happened is he became, the only begotten son now, became the firstborn among many brethren. (laughs) And so his kind has increased and it is reproduced. And so I trace this throughout the New Testament as well, and really this gets back to identity. We begin to see that we are not part of this earth. We are a new humanity. What God always intended from the very beginning, if Adam would have taken from the tree of life, (laughs) he would have been the new creation, you know? But instead he took from the wrong tree, and so we got the old creation on the planet. But anyway, it's a glorious thing to see who we really are in the eyes of God. And the early Christians, back in the second century, it's interesting, they identified themselves as the third race. (laughs) They weren't Jew, and they weren't Gentile. They were something other And we, as Christians, we're not Jew nor Gentile. In Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We're something different. We're part of a new creation. And so the practical results of that and the meaning of that and how it impacts our lives is brought out in the third part of the book.
0: Now, that is phenomenal, because I think to get to that place where we can get our true identity in Christ— I was sharing last week and the word the Lord gave me in organic meeting last week in Pennsylvania was, who told you you were broken? And what the Lord was saying is, when you see yourself in him, that you are a new creation. The old has gone and behold, all things are new. You know, it's in our weakness that he is strong. We've got to get to that place where we see ourselves through the eyes of who we really are in Christ. I tell you, this has just been awesome. I'm just sucking in what you're saying here. And I think it's very important that we get to that place where we understand that we are (laughs) another race. What an incredible statement. We read it, but very often we've not been able to comprehend that in a true way of our identity. But if we know who we are, we have authority. When people are reading this book, what sort of testimonies are you getting back from the area of authority? Because when people get hold of their identity, it's certainly going to cause a dramatic change in their life, isn't it?
1: Well, absolutely, because it changes how we view ourselves, Yeah, It changes how we view our Lord, because this book is really a presentation, I guess a re-presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center of God's eternal purpose, and even in the last chapter, I talk about my own journey of how I chased so many different Christian things. You know, one season it was evangelism, and another season it was apologetics and debating with atheists, and another season it was pursuing holiness, and another season it was power and the gifts of the Spirit, and I came to the place where I realized that all of those things, those spiritual things, were its, I-T-S, its, and things. And what I really needed, and what every Christian needs, and whatever human being needs, is a him, not yes. an it or a thing. <laughs> it's Christ. Yes. And when we really understand his greatness and who he is, he is the incarnation of all spiritual things. He is the substance of all spiritual things. You know, it's one thing to pursue gifts as a thing, it's another thing to pursue the giver who is the embodiment of all the gifts, you Yes. See? So there's a difference between pursuing something that's Christian and pursuing Jesus Christ as that very thing. Paul tells us He is sanctification. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is our holiness. He is everything that we need. He is everything that we were built for. He is everything, period. That is spiritual. And so consequently, the center is Jesus Christ. And the common response has been, I've never seen the Lord like this. I now view the Church totally different. As I said before, I've fallen in love with the Lord all over again. uh, Some of them are saying, I've been totally set free, I don't feel guilty anymore, I'm now free to love my Lord, and a lot of people are saying their lives have been changed. So I'm humbled by it, but in a way I'm not surprised, because... The message of the book changed my life 17 years ago.
2: Yes. And so
1: consequently, that's why I wrote it. You know, I had this wonderful experience, this wonderful seeing of Jesus Christ in the Scripture, that He's a center of all things, that God has an eternal purpose, that He's been working out from eternity past, and he's still working it out. It is his central thought. It is his passion. It is his ultimate intention. And so consequently, that message changed me as a person. Yes. And so I wanted to communicate that so that God and the Holy Spirit would hopefully breathe on it <laughs> so that <laughs> others can have that same kind of dramatic experience.
0: I want to encourage the listeners as well because. Basically, we have many people writing books today because they just have a revelation and they write about something they don't understand. But as I've read through the pages of this book, I see that this is something that's been written from someone who has lived the life first before he's written about it. And that's what you've done, Frank. And I really believe that's what gives this book so much authority. But how do you see a local church carrying out the ageless purpose of God?
1: First of all, they need to be uh, captivated by it, and that requires, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There has to be the message of the eternal purpose in Christ brought to them. That's step one, because if we're ignorant of it, there's no way we can stand for it. The second thing is to let it shape us to let that eternal purpose in Christ, which is not separate from Christ, one of the points I make in the book is you can't separate God from his purpose. It's the one and the same thing. Yes. And to to be riveted by it, to be touched by it, to be shaped by it, and to align ourselves as a people, okay? And let me just say this, understanding the eternal purpose— And standing for it is not going to make you a perfect Christian. This is not about perfection. I'm the least perfect person you'll meet. (laughs) And everyone else I've met who have been captivated by it is imperfect. It's not about trying to be perfect. It's about receiving the love of God and naturally and organically and without effort loving him back and standing in the thing that he created the earth for the very provocation for creation. And so consequently, when a church really gets a hold of this, they have a brand new purpose. They have a new, if I'll use this term, a new mission statement, okay? Yes. (laughs) And they'll find themselves rewriting their mission statement. And what will be at the very top is we are standing for the ultimate intention and the ultimate passion of God in the earth. And this is what our stance will be. And I believe that no church should exist. I don't care what it is, house church, cell church, institutional church, no church should exist except for one thing, to stand on this earth for the eternal purpose of God. And if we miss that, we have missed everything. We've missed the ship. We're on the wrong boarding dock or whatever it is. We've missed it. Okay, we've missed the boat. And we're chasing something that is so far less than what God is wanting and what His heart is beating for. That's my conviction, and one of the things that's really been great is that many churches, particularly those who are gathering outside the institutional church, have taken this book and the discussion guide, and there is a free discussion guide that goes with it. You can get it from, from EternityToHere.org, just go on that website, and from EternityToHere.org, all the information on the book is there. But anyway, they're using it in their groups, getting that vision together. If you don't mind, I'd like to quote Jesse Penn Lewis about this matter of vision. Can I do that? Absolutely. Uh All right, I'm going to read this slow because it's so powerful. Jesse Penn Lewis wrote, The soul must always have a heavenly vision to draw it from the things of earth. The eyes of the heart must be illuminated to know the hope of its calling. The clearer the vision, the more entire The abandonment to the Holy Spirit for its fulfillment, and the more intense the thirst after God, a furnace of intense desire which must be created by the eternal Spirit Himself, and which is the supreme condition of knowing God. Paul talked about the heavenly vision. He said, to one of the rulers that he was standing in front of. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What was that heavenly vision? It was the vision of God's eternal purpose in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes. It is that which we center our lives on. It is the reason why we live and breathe oxygen. It is the reason why the Church exists to fulfill God's eternal purpose, which is by Him, through Him, and to Him.
0: That is just radical. That's awesome. Well, I want to ask you one question before we close. How does this book compare and contrast with your other books, namely Pagan Christianity and Reimagining Church?
1: Well, that's a good question, isn't it? I've been asked that quite a bit. I have been, since 2004, I have been working on a series of five books on what I'll call radical church restoration. And they all work together, and let me tell you how they work together. The first one is entitled The Untold Story of the New Testament Church, and what that does is it gives us a chronological, free-flowing narrative of the first century Church putting all of the epistles together with the Book of Acts and writing it as a you-are-there narrative in chronological order. Mm -hmm. So it fills in all the historical gaps, and you get this one sweeping drama of what happened from the day of Pentecost all the way to when John is put on the Isle of Patmos and he writes Revelation. So um, that's the first book, and it's really a handbook to the New Testament. The second book is Pagan Christianity, co-authored with George Barna, and the purpose of that book is to question and challenge all of our church practices, our Protestant church practices and traditions, and to show basically that most of what we do for church did not come from the New Testament or the Apostles or Jesus Christ, But it's rooted in human traditions, and our point is that these traditions, we believe, have hindered the functioning of the body of Christ, and have stifled the working out of God's eternal purpose, and have subverted the headship of Jesus Christ. Yes. And then we put the question to the reader, is it possible that these things have done all that? Because pagan Christianity has a question mark after after it, (laughs) which says, do you agree with this? Could it be possible that because we've gotten these things from human traditions that they have affected us negatively and hindered God's purpose? Okay, so that's the second book. The third book is called Reimagining Church, and that's the positive side of the argument. It says, okay, if what we're doing for church doesn't line up with New Testament principles, then what is God's intention for the church? How should it function? What does she look like when she's operating according to her spiritual instincts? What did God create the Church for anyway, and how is it expressed in the earth? So that's what Reimagining Church is. And then this is the fourth book, From Eternity to Here. And by the way, they're all standalone books. You don't have to read them all to understand them. Pagan Christianity is really designed to be part one of the argument, though, of Church traditions and reimagining is part two, although reimagining is a standalone book. Well, From Eternity to Here Uh is book four, and this steps back from the question of Church practices and asks the question, what are we doing here for in the first place? Why are we here? What's God's (laughs) purpose? Why did he create in the first place? What's he really after? This is the big, sweeping epic of God's ultimate intention and the central grand narrative of the Bible, okay? And then the fifth book, which is not out yet, the fifth and final book in the series, comes out in September, and that's all about church planting. It answers the question okay, fine, I agree with what you've written. (laughs) I agree that there's something more to church and something more to the Christian life than what I thought. Okay, fine, you don't have to convince me. What do I do now? Where do I find this? (laughs) Okay? And so that's what that last book is. It's the practical question of, okay, how are these churches that stand for God's eternal purpose, that express Jesus Christ organically, how are they founded? How are they planted? How do we find them? Et cetera, et cetera.
0: That's going to be exciting because I know that many people have got questions, especially after reading Pagan Christianity and reimagining church. You see people moving their position because they want to be in God's position and mm-hmm. doing it his way. And that's why I feel this book, From Eternity to Here, I pray that this just sets people on fire. Because if we get that right identity, if we understand mm-hmm. what God is doing in the world Then it's going to take away confusion because we've got to get over this whole thing of just follow the program, follow the agenda. And we have these blinkers on, just three steps to this. Here's a bunch of principles. Apply them to your life. You're going to feel good. Well, it's not really about us feeling good. It's about Mm -hmm. us being who God has called us to be Mm -hmm. and fulfilling his purpose in our lives here on earth. So, Frank, I appreciate so much this book. It's just been such a blessing, and it's something that I can encourage other people with. And I I pray that our listeners will get out. If you don't have this book, From Eternity to Here, I want to encourage you to get out and get hold of that book, but also get hold of the other books that Frank has shared about. How can the listeners get hold of this book?
1: Well, there's two ways. Real easy. They can go to the website Uh frankviola.com, and that website has all of my books. It also has lots of free resources on it or if they want the new one they can just go to from eternity to uh-huh. and they can find it there as well. So I encourage your listeners to take a look at these things because I think we're in a period of time now where God's people are beginning to question and challenge the status quo. Yes. And that has always been happening throughout church history, but we're living in a unique time where a lot of the mainstream Christians and mainstream churches are now doing that very thing. And so it's a critical time in church history, to my mind, and it's one that I hope the Lord will get what He's after and will begin to carve out a new path toward meeting His very desire, that which he created for. So let's see how the Lord works in all yeah. this. And I'm just so excited and privileged and honored to be on your show again. I'm very thankful for it.
0: Oh, I appreciate it, Frank. I've got a few questions that's come in from pastors that I'd just like us to just hit on for a couple of seconds before we leave. I got a pastor that wrote to me. He's really started to investigate more on organic church. He was actually quite disheartened because a couple of members within his church were really causing discord at trying to get people out of the church because they had read Mm -hmm. books on the organic movement. Mm -hmm. Do you have any encouragement? Because obviously I wrote back to him and I said, look, the heart of God isn't discord. Mm -hmm. And what I was afraid of is that the pastor would take the position of, well, this organic movement is like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that was his words Mm -hmm. because he saw the abuse of what people were doing now if you're reading frank's books and pagan christianity Mm reimagining church and it's affecting and changing your life can you please give our listeners advice on how they approach leaving institutional church if that's what it takes Mm
1: -hmm. how do they move
0: Mm -hmm. forward in a spirit of grace and love
1: well it's sad to hear that some christians are using some of the material and of course i'm not the only one writing about this to try to get people to leave their particular institutional church. We have, in the very beginning of Pagan Christianity, we have a statement it's right there in the beginning part, where we say, if you feel called to leave the institutional church, and you may, I mean, that's happening worldwide and in our country, then we say, please do not take anyone with you. Right. Leave quietly and let god work on the hearts of his people he may have some of them stay there i mean the fact of the matter is not everybody's ready to take that kind of a step and there are people that would never be interested in meeting outside an institutional church and in the season of of the life that they're in they're getting something of the lord wherever they're planted so everyone has to be led of the lord on this but if you leave don't take anyone with you leave quietly And that comes right from the book. In fact, I'm going to read it. This is on page 5. At this moment, all the rebellious hearts are applauding and are plotting to wield the above paragraphs to wreak havoc in their churches. If that is you, dear rebellious heart, you have missed our point by a considerable distance. We do not stand with you. Our advice, either leave your church quietly, refusing to cause division, or be at peace with it. There is a vast gulf between rebellion and taking a stand for what is true. Yes. So I left the institutional church. Most of my friends have. I still have friends who are in the institutional church, good friends with them, and I have friends who are pastors. And we don't agree on everything, but we're still brothers in Christ. And so the bottom line is, do not cause division. If God has led you out, if he's leading you out, then leave quietly. Don't slam the door when you go. Don't try to take anyone else with you. Let the Lord deal with each individual person, because... Truth can be a divisive thing if it's in the hands of a divisive person. Yes. That's certainly not what we espouse.
0: No, I appreciate you sharing those words of wisdom, and I just hope that they will be an encouragement to those that are receiving a revelation of the organic expression of the body of Christ.
1: I would like to add a comment mm-hmm. to the pastor, though. Can I say yeah, something absolutely. to absolutely. absolutely. Okay, number one, if you're a pastor... And you have people who are part of your church leave, two things. One, they're not your sheep. They're the Lord's sheep. Right. And if you become threatened by that, then you have stepped off of spiritual ground, and you're now operating in the flesh. They're not your sheep. They're the Lord's sheep. Number two, you need to come to grips with the fact that many Christians, a growing number of God's people, have come to the conclusion that the institutional church and the clergy system is not biblical, and you need to respect that and not demonize people who leave your congregation because they do not believe by conviction that it is biblical. And so the word goes to both people, (laughs) (laughs) both to the pastor who is observing this, as well as the person who may be misusing the insights that they're getting at a personal level, So, uh, I just wanted to add that because I think that's very important as well.
0: That's vitally important. And, Frank, again, thank you so much. This has been just an exciting time. You know, if you're listening to this show right now and you would like to send us feedback, we love to hear feedback on what. God is doing in your life following these shows, these radio broadcasts, you can call us. We've got a telephone hotline. And, Frank, no one really wants to call this number. I don't know why. We get emails. They post things on our social network and stuff. But the phone number is 704-257-6074. Will someone be the first person to call and leave a testimony on the testimony line? (laughs) And we would love to hear that. But again, keep those emails coming in. It's feedback at gotalife.org. That's G-O-T-T-A-L-I-F-E dot org. Again, you're listening to Capture the Moment on The Organic Church. And today we've got Frank Viola from Present Testimony Ministry. You can get to his website at frankviola.com. I hope you'll get out there and support Frank and his ministry by purchasing these books as he and his team seek to make a difference and be part of making a difference in this generation. Until next
1: time, God bless. Is Christ given the right Given the permission to lead this body of believers.
4: Capture the
1: there are clergy and there are laity, so yeah. this thing permeates everywhere. It's an assumption
0: that looms behind everything that's done.
2: Capture
4: the
1: How does God change us? How does He transform us? And it won't matter whether you're called a leader or not, you'll be doing what Christ wants, and that's all it takes the impulse of the church is really the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. God is made up of three distinct persons who are not separate. They're one and there's only one God, but then the one God, those three, there's a community. One of the key reasons why the body of Christ is in such ill health is because they're putting the burden fundamentally on one or two people. Lord, you want a house, you want a body, you want a bride. Now you're depending on the Lord to guide the body, and that is such a radical paradigm. In the Christian life, self-preservation has no place. Organic church life is not native to this planet. It comes from the heavenly spiritual realm. And so the leadership develops naturally by the fact that the seed of Christ's kingdom is planted in your heart. He said, I can of myself do nothing. The Son of God said that. Jesus is the head and all of us are the body and we all respond in connection to Jesus' command. Jesus Christ is still alive. He is alive enough to be head over his own church.
0: Listen to Capture the Moment and discover what God is saying about Organic Church today.